Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Tonight we have a great show lined up, kind of more in the old-school V Radio fashion of a large panel discussing a blog. Um, you can read along with us on my blog by going to vradio.org. That's v-radio.org. Uh, and clicking on the blog tab, and there you will find the blog that has the clips of the various articles that we will be discussing today on the show. Um, I believe one of my panelists might actually still be stepping out to deal with something, so we'll get to introducing him last. We're going to start with uh, the one who likes to introduce himself the least, and that would be you, Chibi. Hello. <laughs> oh, jeez. He's so long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Thunder, introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. Do I need to introduce myself? I thought everybody knew me by now. You never know, man. I have new listeners all the time. They may not be aware of the epic that is Thunder. You have oh, to share please. it with them. Please you don't do tell that. them about your own show. I Well, actually, my show is... I haven't had time to do a show, so... But I do have a show, Z Radio, Z hyphen Radio, here on Blog Talk, for those that aren't aware... And so thanks for inviting me. No problem. And uh, Gilbert, i.e. Dark Dancer. Hello, I'm uh, Gilbert from the Netherlands, and I'm the International Chapter Coordinator for the Red Guys Movement. Okay, and last but not least, we have Jack Reed of the Community Planet Foundation. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Jack. Hi. Um, I am the director of the Community Planet Foundation, and the author of the book, The Next Evolution of Blueprint for Transforming the Planet, and that's what we are all about. That's at uh, communityplanet.org, correct? Communityplanet.org, correct. Okay, just making sure my listeners had a reference on that. I just wanted to repeat it in case they needed to write it down. No, that's fine. I, I bring you guys on here because you can plug any of the stuff that you're doing that's you know benefiting the world as well, so no problem at all. Um, in any case, uh, actually, yeah, we just got a positive comment about that from uh, somebody in the chat room said that it was a great book. So um, Anyway, uh, so tonight we're going to be discussing uh, why money and the things you buy with it do not make you happy. Um, I'm going to be quoting from a couple of different articles um, I'm actually kind of surprised that a few different sources that prove a lot of Jacques Fresco's ideas about behavior kind of came to my attention around the same time. Um, one of which you may remember I circulated a video uh, that was an excerpt from one of Daniel Pink's um, lectures specifically discussing the subject of the, the science behind what motivates us. Um, I was going to play that clip, but I've decided not to mess with it now because the sound settings on Windows 7 are more, a bit more complicated when it comes to stereo mix, but we may do that on another show. Um, other than that, uh, there was a couple of different articles that I'll be sourcing here. Um, you can, as I said earlier, see them on the V Radio blog. Um, and in a typical V Radio format, I'm going to be reading from the blog, and then we're going to stop and consult with all of the panelists. Um, I know that Mr. Reed can only be with us for one hour tonight, so I'm going to do my best to uh, get as much out of him while he's here. <laughs> so, <clears throat> all right, everybody, uh, let's get ready to hunker down here, and uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to V-Radio. Chibi, did you have something to say? 
Uh, sorry, I think I accidentally hit the wrong button. Uh, I, actually, I would plug the book by Daniel Pink, uh, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. If, if people can download a PDF, of it, it's a good book, what I've seen. Okay, excellent. I'm actually going to try to get him on a show. It's uh, hard to get some of those guests, though. Um, in any case, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, start reading the blog. Uh, the first article is entitled, Why Money Makes You Unhappy by Jonah Lehrer. Money is surprisingly bad at making us happy. Once we escape the trap of poverty, levels of wealth have an extremely modest impact on levels of happiness, especially in developed countries. Even worse, it appears that the richest nation in history, 21st century um, America, is slowly getting less pleased with life, or as the economists behind this recent analysis concluded, in the United States, the psychological well-being of successive birth cohorts has gradually fallen through time. Needless to say, this data contradicts one of the central assumptions of modern society, which is that more money equals more pleasure. That's why we work hard, fret about the stock market, and save up for that expensive dinner, watch, phone, car, or condo. We've been led to believe that dollars are delight in a fungible form. But the statistical disconnect between money and happiness raises a fascinating question. Why doesn't money make us happy? One intriguing answer comes from a new study by psychologists at the University of Liege published in Psychological Science. The scientists explore the experience-stretching hypothesis, an idea first proposed by Daniel Gilbert. He explains experience-stretching with the following anecdote. Um, oh, so to the panelists, um, if you haven't muted already, please do so. Um, I've played the guitar for years and I get very little pleasure from executing an endless repetition of three-chord blues. But when I first learned to play as a teenager, I would sit upstairs in my bedroom happily strumming those three chords until my parents banged on the ceiling. Doesn't it seem reasonable to invoke the experience-stretching hypothesis and say that an experience that once brought me pleasure no longer does? A man who is given a drink of water after being lost in the Mojave Desert may at that, that moment rate his happiness as an eight. A year later, the same drink might induce him to feel no better than a two. What does experience stretching have to do with money and happiness? The liege psychologists propose that because money allows us to enjoy the best things in life, we can stay at expensive hotels and eat exquisite sushi and buy the nicest gadgets, we actually decrease our ability to enjoy the mundane joys of everyday life. The list of such pleasures includes sunny days, cold beers, and chocolate bars. And since most of our joys are mundane, we can't sleep at the Ritz every night. Our ability to splurge actually backfires. We try to treat ourselves, but we end up spoiling ourselves. The study itself is straightforward. The psychologists gathered 351 adult employees at the University of Liege from custodial staff to senior administrators for an online survey. I should note that it remains unclear whether happiness and other aspects of well-being can be meaningfully measured with a multiple-choice test so caveats apply. The scientists primed the subjects by showing them a stack of euro bills before asking them a bunch of questions which attempted to capture their savoring ability. Here's how the savoring test worked. Participants are asked to imagine finishing an important task, contentment, spending a romantic weekend away, joy, or discovering an amazing waterfall while hiking, awe. Each scenario is followed by eight possible reactions, including the four savoring strategies referred to in the introduction. In other words, displaying positive emotions, staying present, anticipating or reminiscing about the event, and telling other 
people about the experience. Participants are required to select the response or responses that best characterize what their typical behavior in each situation would be and receive one point for each savoring strategy selected. Interestingly, the scientists found that the people in the wealth condition, I'm sorry, found that people in the wealth condition, they've been primed with all of those euros, had significantly lower savoring scores. This suggests that simply looking at money makes us less interested in relishing the minor pleasures of life. Furthermore, subjects who made more money in real life, the scientists asked all the subjects for their monthly income, scored significantly lower on the savoring test. A subsequent experiment duplicated this effect among Canadian students who spent less time savoring a chocolate bar after being shown a picture of the Canadian dollars. The psychologists end on a bleak note. Taken together, our findings provide evidence for the provocative notion that having access to the best things in life may actually undermine one's ability to reap enjoyment from life's small pleasures. Our research demonstrates that a simple reminder of wealth produces the same deleterious effects as actual wealth on an individual's ability to savor, suggesting that perceived access to pleasurable experiences may be sufficient to impair everyday savoring. In other words, one need not actually visit the pyramids of Egypt or spend a week at the legendary Banff spas in Canada for one's savoring ability to be impaired. Simply knowing that these peak experiences are readily available may increase one's tendency to take the small pleasures of daily life for granted. This makes me think of the Amish. From a certain perspective, the Amish live without a lot of the stuff most of us consider essential. They don't use cars, reject the Internet, avoid the mall, and prefer acquired permanence to hefty bank accounts. The end result, however, is happiness is a happiness boom. When asked to rate their life satisfaction on a scale of 1 to 10, the Amish are as satisfied with their lives as members of the Forbes 400. There are, of course, many ways to explain the contentment of the Amish. The community has strong ties, plenty of religious faith, and stable families, all of which reliably correlate with high levels of well-being. But I can't wonder if, um, if part of their happiness is related to the experience stretching. They don't fret about getting the latest iPhone or eating at the posh new restaurant or buying the Al-Qurant handbag, handbag. The end result, perhaps, is that the Amish are better able to enjoy what really matters, which is all the stuff they, that money can't buy. Hmm, that's the money can't buy. Imagine that. The next pair of articles, oh, yeah, actually, we'll go ahead and pause there, um, and I will bring on uh, my panelists. Um, let's start with you, Jack. Uh, what did you think about that article and its reference to how money actually doesn't make you happy? Well, looks like, actually, I may have to reconnect Jack. Let's see, he might have had internet problems. That being the case, I'm going to skip on to Chibi. What did you think? Uh, I like the study and its conclusions, although there was some things I... I think I'd, I'd like to see a neurological study on the same basis, you know, and see what kind of uh, neurotransmitters are released in, during these um, tests as opposed to just asking someone how they feel and scale it on a, you know, on a happy scale. That's obviously not as effective as, as that if you could actually measure brain activity during the transactions and whatnot, like see how much dopamine is released or something like that. But I'm pretty sure the, the results would be similar, but that's the only thing I would say you know, about those studies. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Are you with us, Jack? I am. For some reason, I was cut off, and thanks for calling back. That's no problem, Jack. Um, were you able to hear at least most of the article I read? 
Yeah, I heard except for the last few seconds. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, did you want to comment on like you know your own experiences since you know you obviously also deal with this sort of thing? You, you know how money doesn't really make people happy. Well, you know I think it'd be interesting for each of us to share what the what we consider the best day of our life, and uh, for me, it was with just two friends, one of whom went with me when we were backpacking in the Sierras, and we were camping at out about 10,500 feet, and then one of the friends and I decided to climb this 14,000-foot mountain to hike up to it. It wasn't, you know, we weren't using ropes or anything. And that day was just so spectacular. I can remember still, though it was decades ago, I can remember each event of that day as if it was yesterday because it was just so overwhelmingly joyful. And I think most of my experiences that I've had in life where I just just felt plugged into overwhelming joy and loving and happiness have been experiences like that that required no money at all. The last time I went backpacking, I was out for a week and it took me about 45 minutes, I'd say, to adjust to being out there. And it took me about two weeks to adjust to being back in life itself. So it's like money cannot necessarily buy. Maybe it can facilitate some things. But, but the choice on the happiness is something that that rest in me each moment of, of every day. And I think the the surveys that have been done recently, much as this article alludes to, say that people would rather, given a choice between more money or more time, they'd rather have more time. And, and so I think the a lot of the views about money are changing, and I think a lot of what's happening in the world right now economically is going to really facilitate and catalyze that change as people realize, like, hey, i got to get off the treadmill. It's actually it's ironic that you pointed that out, Jack, because the next article that we'll be reading from after this talks about that also in regards to material items. Um, and I agree with you. I've had a lot of experiences of the same caliber. When I went to Ireland, um, my moments there were far more important to me than anything that I've ever owned. Uh, any item I've ever owned, any amount of money I've ever earned. I mean, you know, and, and it's unfortunate because, you know, yes, it did cost some money to get me to Ireland, but, you know, it, the experience was not enhanced by the money. If I was in Ireland, you know, and, there, and money was not an object, you know, at that point, it, money would not have affected me. In fact, the, the experience that I had that I loved the most was my time in Killarney National Park, where we spent next to no money, just because we were out in nature and enjoying you know, ourselves and what we were doing out there. It was just, it was amazing. So um, I'm now going to bring on Gilbert. Um, so what do you think so far about this article we've read, Gilbert? Well, the first thing that struck me really was how I was trying to look at it, at it in a holistic way. And the, the main point they seem to be making about money not making a person happy in particular was uh, accessibility. I mean, I agree with the overall statement that, that you wouldn't need money as an item to be happy or whatever the study related it to, but it also triggered another feeling in me that would be that in the current system, 
that I had instances in which money, as is, is the current system, made it more accessible for me to enjoy certain things that I wanted to do. So I think that's the, the main limitation here and why people aren't happy, because they don't have access to something, and it's being hyped up by the current conditioning and society, then there will be a desire to have access to these things, and that's why it's so normal for people to work very hard for something they want, uh, whilst actually uh, we have enough resources to provide most of those things, but with the monetary system in place, they do get a, a sense of satisfaction, even though it's really short by accomplishing that which they wanted access to. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, it seems as though Thunder is also having an internet com uh, connection problem, so I won't be able to come back to him yet. Um, now, uh, one of the things that uh, this article also pointed out that I'm going to comment, and I, I have a feeling Chibi wants to talk because he has that distinct hum when his mic comes up. That's <laughs> <laughs> my air conditioner. Oh, okay. Um, but anyway, uh, is that they pointed out that after you do get everything, because this is one of the things that they always tell us when they're critiquing us. Well, you know, in a resource-based economy, if people have free access to resources, they're just going to grab everything, and, you know, everybody will want everything, and they won't, you know, won't be able to work. And what this article is pointing out is that after people have acquired all of those worldly goods, you know, and have had all of their money, they, they actually become less satisfied with it. The novelty wears off. Um, you know, and that's... Uh, at that point, it's kind of, you know, we may go through a period where a couple of people, you know, while adjusting to the resource-based economy model might do that, but I think it's going to be a minority, and I also think they're going to find that it's not very fulfilling, and everybody will eventually outgrow it, because after you've had all that stuff, it's, it, it doesn't motivate you anymore. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't enhance the quality of your life, and instead, uh, what you'll be looking at is you're going to get bored with all that stuff. And then you're going to want to do other things, like, you know, enriching things, like exploration, betterment of yourself, your education, things of that nature. Now, go ahead, Chibi. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to expand on that as well, basically, like what Dark Dancer was saying. I mean, it, with any activity, any activity, it's not just drugs that are addictive, but just behavior in general, that things become habitual and repetitive and addictive by extension, in a way. So when you do something that it may require more money to do that thing, but once you've done it, you want to keep doing it, and then that becomes the norm. And anything, it's hard to lower your standard of living at that point, of course. But it does become mundane and then less enjoyable over time, and so you're not happy with it, and so you want more. And it's like, what's the next thing? And, and um, They don't really talk about that in this study, the habitual and addictive side of, of behavior, but I think that plays a big role as well. And also ties into neurology and how, you, how the brain works because any behavior can be addictive. Yes, as one of our listeners was pointing out in the chat room, video games are addictive. Um, and I've definitely seen that. Uh, we've, we've talked about that. It kind of ties more. into the uh, autonomy, uh, autonomy mastery uh, concept that, that Dan Pink talks about. Yes. Um, I really do hope I can get him on a future episode. I think that'd be great. Uh, uh, but... You know, I think um, one of the things that they're pointing out here, and, and I have seen this firsthand, um, I've seen uh, people who are really well-to-do become very unhappy. Uh, you see rich kids, for example, um, get in a lot of trouble. You know, you have rich kids who do things like uh, shoplift. You know, these are people who have the money, um, but they're doing it for the sheer thrill 
of stealing. They don't need it, <laughs> but they're bored. So they basically end up, you know, because they've got everything they want. These are kids who have the jet skis and the four. It's the adrenaline rush. Yes, the adrenaline rush. Yeah, I, I experienced that personally. I know exactly how that goes. Right. You know, and that's uh, that's an element that, you know, money is actually making these kids miserable because they have everything that a kid would want. And we are essentially told that the acquisition of money will make us happy. And then when we get there and the pot of the gold at the end of the rainbow, you know, proves that it's not really be worth anything. And that's that's one of the reasons why I see so many people wasting their lives and, you know, so much uh, work. It's like, I remember my brother, uh, actually, um, he worked so much, and I always asked him, so when do you get any time to spend this money? You know, <laughs> when, when do you get time to do anything? Because, uh, you know, I could never, uh, you know, I could never imagine working. He would work seven days a week sometimes, voluntary overtime. And because of that, I, you know, we couldn't get together and do anything. Um, in fact, the only time I'd ever see him was for, like, you know, Thanksgiving, things like that. And, then, and I wonder to myself, you know, when you're on, you know, how many people on their deathbed have said, gee, I really wish I had spent more time at work, you know, <laughs> that's, I, you know, I wish I had spent more time, you know, making someone else rich, because that's generally what it amounts to anyway. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, I'm trying to put people down for hard work. If, if your work, for example, is something that invigorates you, you know, makes you feel good, then great, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be in that category. But but the main point here is is that you're kind of given the carrot of the stick of happiness. You're told that you'll be happy. You know, um, you're told that you will be happy if you do these things, if you if you step through these hoops. And then you get to the end and you're just not. You know, and that's why they're pointing out here that money makes you unhappy because if you have a lot of it, eventually, there there you, what you have been brainwashed to believe is the game of life. It's like putting in the cheat codes, you know, in a, you know, in a first-person shooter. <laughs> it might be entertaining for maybe about, you know, 10 minutes or so, and then eventually it's not anymore. You know, so, and then after yeah, that... And you can't go back to the normal game after that. Right. You ruin the game for yourself entirely. You know, it's, uh, there are several games that, you know, that have done, they're, they're like that. You end up kind of just ruining it for yourself because... You know, now the, the appeal of not having those things is gone, you know, the things that the cheat codes gave you. Um, so you don't have any drive, you know, and, and essentially what we're talking about here, you know, the moral of the story is not to worry about cheat codes for video games. It has more to do with the fact that, you know, getting what we have been told is the goal of life does not guarantee happiness. And, in fact, it's actually kind of hollow. Um, now, before I go on reading any further, do we, do we have any comments? For, you know, because we have plenty of time. Do we have any comments from Gilbert or Jack? I do have a comment. And I was thinking back about a period of my life where I co-signed a loan for a friend of mine and got stuck with uh, $35,000. Yeah, it was $33,000 that I had to... Uh, take the responsibility for paying back. And it took me a year and a half on my state of California rehabilitation counselor salary to do it. But the way I did it is I went on a money fast where I didn't spend any money on anything for a year and a half that wasn't uh, an absolute essential. So 
everything optional, movies, eating out, uh, anything that was that was you know optional, I cut out, and I just decided to have fun with it. When my friend said, "Let's go to a movie," and I said, "Well, yeah, it, it, I'd go to a movie, but uh, you're going to have to pay." And if they asked me out to eat, I said, well, I'm on a money fast. And I just, it was so liberating for me because I was able to get rid of the, you know, any feelings about people are going to judge me for this or whatever. I just had so much fun with it uh, for for that period of time. Um, so th- that's one thing. It, it, happiness comes from inside us. So whatever situation we're in and there was a, a guy who uh, who became a psychologist who was in the in in the uh, concentration camps i forget what his name is but victor victor something and you know he made it a point to in his situation to just come from a place of happiness inside him and it's, it's what allowed him to survive in that situation. Uh, but the other thing is that we're talking about a certain segment of Western culture also. And for some of the people in the world who are really living on the edge, uh, access to resources could really change their their lives. So I don't think we're talking about that necessarily in this show, but there are billions of people who we need to create a a better world for, and uh, their choices are really minimal, and, and money would absolutely, in terms of just the issues of survival, would make a huge difference in a lot of people's lives on the planet. But I understand we're not talking about that. Well, you know, as you pointed out on an earlier show, is that it's really about access. It's not about money. Um, right. And uh, so, and the, and I see where you're coming from. I think that the main point we're getting at, though, is that the overabundance of access doesn't somehow guarantee happiness. Um, right. Yeah. Particularly yeah. if you have to basically sell your soul, quote unquote, in order to get it. You know, you you find that you know it's, you know, I take for example the uh, the song "Cats in the Cradle." which is about a man who essentially works so much that he really, he wasted a large part of his life. He did not get to really appreciate his relationship with his son. Um, and that's, that's kind of an example of that. You know, he missed all of that because he was so busy working all the time. Um, yeah, I've got a friend who, um, who I just visited here, Healer in Northern California because my friend was diagnosed with, with cancer. And on the way up, uh, because I know that uh, cancer is caused by some sort of um, death wish that's either put out towards somebody else or some kind of, uh, and it doesn't have to be direct like that, but but as we talked, he was just a, a workaholic who, who just wanted out of the whole rat race and the lifestyle that he'd created for himself. So, He's now realizing, like, you know, I, I'm not going to trade my health for for all these material things that I have surrounding me. And he's now in the process of really simplifying his life and selling the business and and not not doing the remodeling that he was going to do in his house. 
he, you know, his life is on the line, and he's very much now into simplifying and and accessing the joy and loving and peacefulness inside him on on a daily basis. All right, um, Gilbert, did you have any closing statements before we read again? No, not really, not at this point in time. Keep reading. I'll have more to add later. Well, I actually, I did want to ask you a question. Um, is, is materialism and consumerism uh, really an issue in the Netherlands? I'd say it's not as bad as in America, but it comes close. It's, uh, you know, well, now that you mentioned that, I did have something to say a little bit earlier when you were mentioning if Jack and I had something to add. I mean, I think that when you consider that the study would show that when all of those uh, things were accessed, that happiness wouldn't increase in general, I think it's about where you set the goals. And uh, for this society with the current conditioning, the goals are set to achieve these things, uh, these material or in other way, uh, sorry, these material goals or these goals of access. So when you change the priorities uh, that society has in, for example, a resource-based economy society, at that point, the strife wouldn't be to access these things because you have the access and uh, it might turn into uh, scientific goals or whatever, uh, something related to art, but it would be something that would be based on what a person in, has, is interested in instead of some material item. So I think that if the priorities change, then perhaps happiness will increase as well. But of course I can't show that, but it would seem to me that it's very likely because uh, when people are able to do what they want to do, often they are much happier. You know, and that's... That's actually a very valuable point, and it, I, it's the more I keep thinking about this, the more I realize I really should have went ahead and played that clip, um, because you know that you know about from Daniel Pink, because he points out that you know the actual scientific studies, these are not just theories, um, scientific studies done by MIT, by you know full-time economists actually, um, found they found that material reward was good for the kind of rote, boring work, you know the I'm doing a task over and over again work. Paying somebody more for that absolutely motivated them more. But for anything that required any kind of intellect, um, you know, intelligent work, it actually was a terrible incentive uh, that people were actually far, you know, worse at it. Um, and they tried first, you know, with some college students in the United States. Uh, and then after that, they went to India because your money would go further there. And uh, they offered somebody, for example, the equivalent of a month's pay uh, for intellectual work, and it, they they found that it was actually the, the worst motivator because um, that's a lot of money, you know, a whole month's pay. Um, and I will definitely make sure that the listeners have access to it, but um, perhaps even provide the link, or if Chibi can throw it in the chat room, that would be great. Um, but Mr. Pink basically, you know, he, he looked into that study, and I was really surprised because, you know, it's, and the funny thing is, is so was Mr. Pink, and uh, in addition to that, so were the people who were doing the studies. And they gave examples, however, of companies that did things like, um, okay, today you can work on whatever you want. Um, and what they found was that productivity shot into the sky. Like, so much good was done on this one day that they would do this, where you could work on whatever you wanted. 
Um, and that was another really telling example. It kind of brings you back to something that Jack and I discussed on a previous show when we talked about making work fun or, you know, uh, choosing to, you know, be in a non-stress environment. That was the other thing about it was that they didn't have a boss breathing down their neck the whole time. And he also went on to explain uh, in that lecture, he went on and talked about the fact that um, some of the things that have come out of work that people do that is, you know, mental in nature uh, that has value um, was Linux, the open source movement, all kinds of different things that people did on their own time for free with no intention of ever making any profit at all. Um, and I know, you know, a lot of people, more people would do that in a resource-based economy because you wouldn't have to be doing these things in order to get your basic possessions of life. You know, I know, for example, I would, I'd love to be working in Africa building a hydroponic farm system to feed the hungry. I can't because my monetary situation prevents it. It's not a lack of willingness to volunteer. It's, it's the fact that I can't. The system is set up in such a way that I'm absolutely dependent on money. Um, and that's actually an example of one of the, you know, when, we, when people tell us that we're never going to be able to find the kinds of, you know, volunteers to do the kind of work that we need to do, you know, because of that. And I, I point out, no, the reasons that we can't find volunteers right now is because of money. That, that's, the, that's the reason, beyond a shadow of a doubt for me. Did you have something further, Chidi? Yeah, what he was talking about was autonomy. That's what you were talking about. It, it was the basis. He, he put forth three interacting variables, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy being you feel like you're in control of what you're doing. Uh, mastery, of course, being you, know, you feel like you're getting better at whatever it is you're trying to succeed at. And it doesn't have to be there was also studies that showed it had it didn't have to be like you went from being you know crappy to amazing in one day it was small increments very small increments and purpose of course being that you feel if if you feel like what you're doing has a a, a purpose greater than what you can see around you perhaps and those three interacting variables are the greatest motivators for any kind of creative work or thought that requires anything any kind of work that requires more than just mundane tasks, like something with your hands that you just move a box on a line or something. Right. Absolutely. You know, um, well, um, I pretty much have uh, said everything I needed to on this. Did anybody else have anything else they wanted to add before we go on? All right. I'm going to take that as a no. Okay. Um, moving on on the V Radio blog, which once again, if you're just tuning in, you can check that out by going to v-radio.org, v-radio.org, whatever you want to call it, um, and uh, join us there. We're now about halfway through. Uh, I accidentally moved away from my place. <laughs> but anyway, um, all right, scrolling down. Once again, everybody, thank you for tuning in to V-Radio. Please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. Um, thank you to everybody who gave donations. They came in absurdly fast, and uh, they helped me keep everything together. So you guys are the reason I'm doing V-Radio. And ironically, actually, that is one of the major motivations behind me doing this show. It's actually also relevant to what it is we're talking about, because um, I thought about this, you know, because I am kind of in a situation where my impact on the planet is kind of small, you know, and but then it occurred to me I get emails all the time about my radio show. It's it's just like you said, Chibi. It's about a matter of 
having an impact on something, you know, outside of yourself and a beneficial one at that. So, all right, found my place. The next pair of articles I will be quoting from, but they are in reference to a woman named Tammy Strobel, who shed her previous consumer lifestyle in favor of limiting the personal items she owned to no more than 100. Uh, to quote, at one point in her life when she owned a two-bedroom condo, two cars, and enough wedding, a wedding china to serve two dozen people, uh, Gazpacho at the same time, Tammy Strobel, 31 years old, asked herself if all that stuff actually made her and her husband, Logan, happy. Apparently, she's not the only woman to feel less than euphoric an hour after making an impulse buy. A story about her new un, uh, unmaterial girl lifestyle is currently the most popular piece on the New York Times website. After the jump, she tells Lemon Drop that exa uh, what exactly she gave away, what she misses most, and why she and her husband are happier than ever living on half their former income. Then you tell us which life you would choose, Tammy's before or Tammy's after. Tammy before. She worked as a project manager for an investment management firm in Davis, California, and netted about 40000 a year. She and Logan also had 30000 in debt. After reading up on the Simplicity Movement, she blogs about it on RowdyKittens.com, they started donating to charity like fiends. Out went sweaters, shoes, books, pots, pans. They even put the TV in the closet as a trial run, then decided they could part with it. Then they sold their cars, too. Next, Tammy found the 100 Things Challenge, a grassroots website movement that encourages consumers to pare down to just 100 items, and from underwear to albums, she did. Tammy after. Three years later, Tammy and Logan live in a 400-square-foot apartment in Portland, Oregon. She owns four, four plates, three pairs of shoes, and two bots. Or pots. Bots. Pots. <laughs> They're still car-free. In fact, they self-published an e-book, Simply Car-Free, about life after oil dependency. She works as a freelance web designer and writer, making about 24000 a year, which she says covers their bills. Logan is getting his doctorate in physiology. The couple is now debt-free. Because she doesn't work as much, Tammy has more time to travel, spend outdoors, be in nature, and volunteer, which she spends four hours a month doing at Living Yoga. This article goes on to ask her what motivated her to do this and how her life is now. Lemon Drop asks, Lemon Drop's the name of the people who were interviewing her. When and why did, you, did the 100 Things Challenge first strike a chord with you? Tammy says, I've been interested in the voluntary simplicity movement for the last four years. Dave Bruno's 100 Things Challenge came along about two years later, and I think it was the simplicity of the challenge that made it so engaging and helped me reevaluate what I need in my life. The point of the challenge is to reduce the number of personal items you own to under 100 items. Methods of counting, counting range from person to person. In my interpretation of Dave's 100 Thing Challenge, the exercise is less about counting up stuff than it is about asking ourselves larger questions like, where was my stuff made? How was my stuff processed? And where does it all go when I'm done with it? Why do I shop so much? Do material things really make me happy? If I have less stuff to worry about, will I have more time to give back to my community? Being aware of how stuff affects our physical and emotional health is empowering. More importantly, making small changes in our own lives leads to a greater awareness of the connection between environmental, economic, and social justice issues. In the next question, she talks about some of the things that are the reason I often suggest people to watch the documentary The Century of Self. Lemon Drop asks, 
Before this, your life seemed to look a lot like a lot of ours. You were newlyweds with an apartment, two cars, and a full-time job. What did you mean when you said you felt trapped on the work-spend treadmill? She says, I was going to work to earn money to buy stuff I didn't need, and that's not a healthy pattern. I didn't feel like I had control over my time or finances. By downsizing, I've gained control over both. The conversation continues. Lemon Drop asks, can you give us a partial list of what you parted with? What was the hardest material thing to leave behind? She says, some of the items we parted with included a lot of books, furniture, clothing, our television, and cars. The cars were the hardest to leave behind. We slowly shed cars over a period of three years. We started out with one car and one truck that we drove daily, and now we don't own a car at all. After we adjusted to car-free living, we asked ourselves, why did it take so long to sell our cars? When I think about how much money we spent on them, I don't miss them at all, especially when you consider the financial strain of car ownership. Even if you've paid off your car, do you really know what the true cost? According to the book, How to Live Well Without Owning a Car, Americans spend one-fifth of their income on cars. An American Automobile Association study point, pointed out that the average American spends $8,410 per year to own a vehicle. That's $700 a month. The figure includes car payments, insurance, gas, oil, car washes, registration fees, taxes, parking, tools, and repairs. And then further, Lemon Drop asks, I think a lot of women, women fantasize about jettisoning their entire lives to have some time to do the things you seem to now. Volunteer for something they love, set their own hours, take a vacation without worrying about vacation days. How do you feel different than you did before? Tammy says, I have so much more motivation now than I did before. Learning how to love life and not stuff was the game changer. Clutter gets in the way of living a, living a full and happy life. Valuable time that could be spent with family, friends, or volunteering gets sucked up with too much time in the house cleaning or in, small, or in the mall shopping or results in financial strain from overspending. I'm not perfect and still have consumer tendencies. However, I've taken note of my trigger points. If I'm feeling lonely, I don't go shopping anymore. I head outside for a bike ride, read a book, or volunteer for a nonprofit. It's clear that she enjoyed her life much more after getting out of the endless ride, uh, getting off the endless ride of working to buy more stuff. When asked was she, if she was happier, yes, we are both happier. Without the burden of stuff or debt weighting us down, we have less anxiety and more time to spend with friends, family, and give back to our community. I know a lot of folks probably think we're crazy, but really what's crazier, living with less or living solely to pay for a large house to store your stuff in? In the second article that also talks about Tammy's lifestyle changes, they quote various scientific studies on the effects of consumerism and happiness. One quote, so just where does happiness reside for consumers? Scholars and researchers haven't determined whether, whether Armani will put a bigger smile on your face than Dulce and Gabbana, but they have found out that our types of purchases, their size and frequency, and even the timing of the spending all affect long-term happiness. One major finding is that spending money for an experience, concert tickets, French lessons, sushi rolling classes, a hotel room in Monaco, produces longer lasting satisfaction than spending money on plain old stuff. Quote, it's better to go on vacation than buy a new couch. It's basically the idea, says Professor Dunn, summing up research by two fellow psychologists, Lee Van Boven and Thomas Gilovich. 
Her own take on the subject is in a paper she wrote with colleagues at Harvard and the University of Virginia. Quote, if money doesn't make you happy, then you probably aren't spending it right. <laughs> this is the name of her uh, thing there. But the Journal of Consumer Psychology plans to publish it in a coming issue. Thomas DeLere, an associate professor of public affairs, population, health, and economics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, recently published research examining nine major categories of consumption. He discovered that the only category to be positively related to happiness was leisure, vacations, entertainment, sports, and equipment like golf clubs and fishing poles. We buy a new house, we get accustomed to it, says Professor Lurembrinsky, who studies what psychologists call hedonic adaption, a phenomenon in which people quickly become used to changes, great or terrible, in order to maintain a stable level of happiness. Over time, that means the buzz from a new purchase is pushed toward the emotional norm. We stop getting pleasure from it, she says. And then, of course, we buy new things. Sounds like an addiction to me. It is critical to understand the value of this information. It proves a few things that are critical about the success of the Venus Project. One, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that all capitalists are trying to chase down loses its luster. People who have everything are not happy just for having everything, whereas people with low material lifestyles, even those who do not have technology like the Amish, seem to have much happier lives. Two, material possessions do not enhance quality of life, and in fact, having too much of them can even hinder your ability to enjoy life. Mankind is lost in a never-ending loop of work, buy, and work some more so you can buy some more, then work some more to buy an even bigger house to put the stuff in that you bought. We end up in huge debt. In the end, our possessions do not belong to us. We belong to them. I remember actually a, a small digression. I used to say this years ago. I refuse to be a slave to my stuff. And it was in reaction to so many of my friends who were forever, you know, car payment, cell phone payment, you know, this payment, that payment. I actually, because of that, I avoid all residual, like, monthly costs. If it's got a monthly cost, I almost never am interested in it. Anyway, on to the, back to the blog. Number three, travel and actual experiences are far more rewarding in the long run than material items. Therefore, the lifestyle we suggest in the Venus Project will be far more fulfilling than any amount of running the rat race to get the next new car, new house, new eye gadget, etc. More and more compelling evidence that our proposed social direction is the right choices, or the right choice surfaces all the time. All right, Jack, I'm going to start with you, provided you're still connected. I'm still connected. Good. All right, well, what did you think? Um. Well, same, same comments, basically, uh, than what I've been saying. It's, uh, I, you know, uh, with what you were just saying, uh, there's a great quote by, uh, a couple of great quotes by one of my heroes, Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, and he said, the, the secret of life is to simplify, simplify, simplify. I think... I think that's where real estate got the location, location, location from. But Thoreau said, simplify, simplify, simplify. And Walden, the book Walden, is probably more appropriate today than when it was written, talking about the, you know, how much joy he took in simplifying his life. And, and Thoreau came from a family with money. Uh, so... He, he just did something else. And one of his other quotes was that he talked about a couple that had a house outside the city 
and they were attempting to sell it for a long period of time without success. And his comment about that was, it wasn't so much that they owned the house as much as the house owned them. And I think that's true of a lot of people's possessions. It's like the possessions own these people. That's actually, yeah, that's why I said I refuse to be a slave to my stuff. Um, you, don't, you want these items, and you're told that you should have them, and you end up coveting them. And, and more to the point, there's a certain amount of social stratification involved. You know, for example, I could have decided to go ahead and buckle down and own a, you know, a large home. I decided instead to just go ahead and, you know, buckle down and, uh, you know, get this manufactured home and just buy it outright because now I have no residual payments every month on this thing that's going to suck the life out of me. And is it a, but, but the thing is, and this is the funny thing, and it's, it's a common tactic of ad hominem, you know, for example, when people are talking about me, they'll be like, yeah, you're just trailer trash, you live in a trailer somewhere. Because, you know, just as, you know, because the story of stuff is ringing in my head, just as Chidi pointed out earlier in our, you know, our chat room for the hosts, uh, you know, was that, you know, the golden era of consumption, you know, if you haven't been, you know, contributing to the golden era of consumption, then other people look down on you, you know. And uh, it, it's interesting because I don't think people really recognize that, that, that it really is that their material items and their acquisition of them it really removes their freedom, you know, uh, because you forever have to worry about, oh, man, i got to make my car payment. i got to – the car payment's one I hear a lot, but, you know, house payment, uh, as I said, cell phone bill, you know, and some of these things are required. The ones that really bother me are the ones that are not, like the, the cell phone bill I've seen. Some people play these astronomical cell phone bills, you know, and they've always got to have the absolute best um, – you know, cell phone, the absolute, you know, most recent edition of the cell phone. That's why, like, in China they have these mounds and mounds of dead cell phones, you know, that, that have, people have thrown away, much of which cannot be recycled. Um, but people don't think like that. And it's, it literally is, you know, you, you get looked at strangely if you're not, you know, holding on to that. That's actually why I said I gadget crims. <laughs> They're responding to somebody in the chat room because it was like, you know, there's so many i things. All my friends are obsessed with the iPod, the iPad, the iPhone. You know, they've always got to keep up with that. They're always buying a new one. And, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, in some cases these are cool tools. Like, you know, I see why somebody would want an iPad. It's, it's nice to have access to information at any time. It's cool to be able to have Internet access. But it almost seems like there is kind of a fad thing going on there, too a fashionable aspect to it that isn't exactly rational. Um, so, um, all right, I'm going to bring on Chidi next. Did you have any comments on the, just the specifics of the, you know, the, these people who have improved their lives by reducing the amount of stuff in them? Well, um, it's hard to say. I haven't been on both sides of this. Uh, I, I've always lived very simplistically. And um, I, I, I'm amazed. I'm, I'm very amazed, actually, when I think about just numerically the, the millionaires or billionaires or whatever, and I think how much I live on, and, you know, I could make as little as 8000 in a year to 10000 whatever, uh, and I feel like I live comfortably, and I think about, well, what would it be like to have a million dollars? And a million's nothing today, but, I mean, that's what you would think. If you really break it down, a million isn't all that much anymore, but then 
so many there's so many millionaires out there and then then you come to the billionaires and it's like they would have to purposely look for things to waste their money on just to just to buy shit just for whatever reason and I, it, it it's actually mind-boggling to think about coming from my position somebody who who lives very simplistically I I mean uh, I'm content most of the time with as far as my living conditions it, it sucks if you're behind on bills or something that there are times where I think yeah money would be nice if I had a little bit more money I could get out of the system or whatever but uh, it's it's just such a small amount I mean I, I've thought about well how much would it take and you know a few hundred thousand and I I would never have to work again and I think well some people make that much a year and they're in debt how does that even happen it's it's ridiculous but you look at the consumerism that goes on and the new cars that they buy every year, the, the big houses that, well, I, I don't know. It's, uh, <clears throat> I, guess, I guess that's it. It's just ridiculous to me. I, I, I can't see both sides of the spectrum here because I haven't been on both sides. But Neil, I'd like to point something out too. Go ahead. And that is that consumerism as I understand it, was basically something that was really born after World War II when they wanted to, you know, they had all this energy geared up from manufacturing and they had to do something with it. So they brought in uh, Freud's nephew, who was the one who, uh, he was a PR genius, and he sold among other things, he sold the uh, the concept of fluoridation, even though fluoride is a is a poison. He was the one responsible for for that myth that it has anything to do with the health of teeth. Right. And he it, they came up with a strategy, very intentionally so, to sell consumerism to the people. Uh, so that was. They they had to convince people through advertising that they really needed all that stuff. But I also wanted to read to you, i was been searching here for this quote about how the system is set up. And this is a quote from uh, the Rothschilds brothers in June 25, 1863, in a letter discussing their banking scheme with fellow conspirators. And the quote goes like this. The few who understand the system, which is the banking system where they create money out of nothing and, uh, and then charge interest on that, will either be so interested in its profits or so dependent on its favors that there will be no opposition from that class. Well, on the other hand, the great body of the people mentally incapable of comprehending the tremendous advantage that capital derives from the system will bear its burdens without complaint and perhaps without even suspecting that the system is inimical to their interests. So that's one of the reasons to keep us distracted also into consumerism is that then these people can keep on the treadmill and keep not thinking about who's actually benefiting from all of this and then those people can stay in power, can stay pulling the strings and the rest of the people can remain as just working class puppets. 
You know, that's, that's actually very good, and it, it points, it goes even further, and I, I bring this up on my show all the time. So to you listeners, if you haven't already, um, I'm going to go get, like, a club that says Century of Self on it and hit you over the head with it until you go watch this documentary. Um, all parts of it you can find on my website in the must-see TV section. The Century of Self exposes how the, you know, the elite on the top uh, did exactly what you're talking about, Jack, uh, using Edward Bernays, you know, uh, Sigmund Freud's nephew and his research on um, behaviorism to convince people that certain aspects of consumerism, not only were they to get you to buy things that you didn't, you know, you didn't need, that it was an expression of freedom, that it was your freedom to buy these things that you didn't need, that it was your freedom to work for things that you don't need, and in fact can even be harmful. And I'm going to bring it up again is because it's, it's the most chilling example. The cigarette industry went to Edward Bernays specifically to ask him how to get women to learn you know, to smoke. And they put a psychologist on the task of figuring out essentially how to brainwash women into smoking. Um, and they convinced them that they needed to smoke because it was a symbol of independence and strength, you know, and, and equality. And they even staged a protest to, to cause this new fashion of women smoking to, uh, to, to catch on. You know, and having a mother who died of lung cancer, that in particular, that item always sticks in my head, and I think about that, you know, because uh, it's, it's really, 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 it's, it's so chilling when you think about it. I mean, it's chilling, but at the same time, it gives me hope, because if it took so few people to manipulate us into being so addicted to consumerism, it shouldn't take that many people to fix it. Um, now, hey, uh, Jack, we had three minutes left in this hour. Uh, did you? I know you needed to go. Do you want to go ahead and uh, say your goodbye, plug your website? or? Well, I'll plug my website, uh, www.communityplanet.org. And if anyone, if any of the listeners go to that website, they can look at the video there, which shows basically how we can transform the planet. It's pretty good. The book, The Next Evolution, is better because it fills in the details, but they will be able to get some sense of that. I have a saying that the solution for everything is the solution to anything because it's the same solution, and it does involve uh, the resource-based economy uh, idea and how to create that starting with an intentional community, which is what Community Planet is working on. Excellent. Thanks a lot for coming on, Jack. Your insight was very valuable tonight. Uh, okay. I just have to do something else, so I'm going to put myself on mute. I'm going to continue listening, and if, if I feel inspired, I can come back and, and say something. You'd be absolutely welcome to do that, Jack. Um, now, uh, we haven't talked to Gilbert here in a little while. Gilbert, did you have anything to comment on, you know, also just specifically on how this, this study that we just read proves that people don't really need a lot of stuff? Well, actually, for me, it was quite hard to relate to because it was quite typical of an American scene. Um, over here in, in Western Europe, certainly in the Netherlands, uh, those issues that were mentioned aren't as bad as in America as it is right now. I'm sure it will be in the future, but for most people, it's uh, it's pretty easy uh, coping with the car bills and the phone bills. It, that that's not really much of an issue. The economy here is slightly better, so 
I, I I understood the context of it and what it might be in the future, but it was hard to relate to uh, from a European perspective. I guess you guys have it really tough already. <laughs> well, you know that's that's very true, and I think that part of it is that a lot of Edward Bernays's work. Uh, in designing society to function in that way didn't really make its way to Europe um, in comparison. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't. And that's, I actually, I feel compelled to bring this up because unfortunately I missed my opportunity to do this because uh, his students uh, have since went back to their homes. But we're going to try to do it in a later edition. It's going to be, I'm going to call it the Chinese Connection. And it talks about China um, and how unfortunately they're seeing in China now that consumerism is taking hold. Uh, this isn't a communist country, or, well, supposedly communist country. Um, when you look at it, it's more of a fascist, uh, actually a fascist capitalist country in the long run. But um, in any case, you know, that those people you know, are now, uh, they feel that it's their turn, you know, that now they get to have, you know, expensive cars and expensive clothes and, you know, that it's, that's their goal, you know, and, it's it's really sad to see you know those those people lose themselves to that, but you know it's it's not uncommon um, that essentially the 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 problem that the United States has is almost like a social disease, and it gets spread everywhere. I remember uh, yeah, I'll I'll make one more comment and then I'm going to go to Chidi. Uh, I remember and I've said this before actually when I went to Ireland, one of the ladies that we stayed with because you stay with a you know, stay in bed bed and breakfast in Ireland. Um, and uh, she was a history teacher, and she said that it seemed that the people in Ireland were not content to let the United States to make, you know, make all these mistakes, that we had to be sure we made them in Ireland as well. And he, she was talking about how all the kids were getting saturated with the, the video games and, you know, a lot of the other pursuits that are not in any way cerebral, nor are they physically healthy, um, and that it, it just spreads. Um, now, what were you going to say, Chidi? Yeah, I just thought it was worthwhile to point out that uh, when we talk about these sort of things, uh, a lot of people who think about less stuff and like getting rid of material belongings, they tend to lean towards anarcho-primitivism or, or something along those lines where we should just go back to being hunter-gatherers or, or you know, denounce electricity and all technology and things like that. And I just thought it was worthwhile to point out that that's not necessarily what we're talking about, uh, that it's not about being completely primitive, that we denounce all material altogether. Um, there are things that's brought us that increase our capabilities and survivability as a species that I think are very positive. It's just those things need to be sustainable and, and of course, the autonomy of it and the mastery and, you know, that whole concept has to come into play as well to motivate people to to want to progress as a species, not as just this cheap sort of, I'm going to buy the new Prada bag because somebody said I should, and, and if I do, then somebody will grin at me and think that I'm better than the person next to me who doesn't have it. it you know, that sort of materialism is obviously has negative impacts on the environment and, and on our happiness levels and culture in and, and general. But it's not to say that material and you know that that there's not a a usefulness to um, technology <clears throat> as it as it stands. Well, it just needs to be redirected. No, and I understand because I I had actually a fairly lively debate with an anarcho-primitivist on our forums at one time 
Um, and it's ironic that when I think of the various anarchist schools, uh, our ideology has a bit more in common with anarcho-primitivism than some of the other ones. Um, but, you know, and, and like, for example, that, uh, that one lecture you gave me from that uh, anarcho-primitivist, what was his name? Chibi? Uh, I'd have to think on it. Yeah, the guy who talked about how, um, well, more, it, this isn't relevant to the point, but it was the guy I asked you for his link a little while ago because he was talking about how uh, it seems that aggressive behavior is always tolerated or even encouraged within society as long as it goes down the scale of what that, at least the social scale of what they perceive. I just can't remember the guy's name, but in any case, you know. Derek Jensen. Yeah, there you go, Derek Jensen. Um, you know, it's basically um, what I had, in, you know, what I was thinking about was that it comes down to understanding and recognizing what you know your real values really are. You know, I remember, for example, there was a time, you know, and I, I think back on this because it really changed my outlook on life. Um, you know, really young bachelor, my early 20s, a friend of mine, you know, just one day, his mom decided to move out and gave him the house, and he asked me to move in with him, you know, to help him pay the bills and stuff, and. Um, we didn't have a lot of money, so and we didn't have cable, and we didn't have, like, Internet back then was dial-up, you know, so it was, you might go on every now and then and chat on AAM, but, you know, it wasn't exactly the most, uh, it wasn't the Internet, <laughs> let's just put it that way. Um, and, uh, you know, we were first really bored, um, and then it occurred to us that less than a stone's throw away, there was a lake. You know, it didn't even occur to us, you know, until we really thought about it. We're like, well, what are we doing here? There's a lake right over there. You know, especially since sitting up late at night, it would get really hot. And so we ended up, you know, using this lake for almost all of our recreation. He owned a canoe, you know, and the lake had, like, access points that, you know, you can get into at any time of the night. So we'd be swimming across this lake at, like, 3 or 4 in the morning, you know, um, and I, I learned how to long distance swim. And I mean, we'd just pick a place in the lake and we'd just go swim out to it, you know, and for really long distances. And we'd be able to talk along the way. It was a very calm lake, you know, so you could just kind of casually swim and, you know, chat while you're swimming. And we, we basically, you know, I was not unhappy at that stage. In fact, we look back on that stage very fondly all the time. And we, and he and I every now and then make the trek back to that lake because he doesn't have that house anymore. Um, but, you know, just to remember that, um, you know, and that's an example of, you know, like there are so many things that we have essentially been convinced are absolutely required for our enjoyment. They're just not, you know, it, it's just a big, it's a smoke screen. You know, like somebody said in the chat room not long ago, it's almost like a matrix in of itself. You're convinced that you need all this stuff. And the reason this is relevant to the Venus Project is because, one of the things that they always tell us when they say that our system won't work is that, you know, people are always going to want more. They're always going to want more resources, and that's why we can't produce everything. You know, uh, and I, I generally kind of point out to them, and it never seems to be sufficient for them, I point out to them that the reason that we think that we need all of this stuff, you know, is a lot more complicated than actual physical need because it really has next to nothing to do with physical need. It's an emotional need. It's a social stratification you know, illusional, illusion need, basically, it's, the need is an illusion. Um, and uh, once you've cut yourself free from that, like, for example, I recommend uh, turning off all advertising. Don't, don't watch advertising. You'll be surprised 
how much getting rid of commercials will fix you. <laughs> it changes everything uh, when you don't watch commercials. Uh, like the only commercials I ever see is every now and then I use Hulu, and there'll be a brief commercial on Hulu, and it's it's not really a big deal. As opposed to watching television for so long, we used to be bombarded with endless commercials. And every now and then a commercial is actually entertaining. You know, they'll come up with something funny or whatever. And, you know, like one of my favorites is still the the guy who's quitting smoking. You know, is it, a black gentleman sitting on a dock. And he keeps saying, cigarette, cigarette, cigarette. And then this great white shark leaps out of the water and grabs his arm. And he's still saying, cigarette, cigarette, cigarette. And then he takes this product that they're selling, of course, you know, that helps people quit smoking. And, uh, you know, it's like a, a Nicorette kind of gum thing. And then suddenly he, you know, because he's taken it, he's aware of what's going on. He's going, shark, shark. And he starts trying to get the shark off of his arm, you know. So every now and then there'll be a commercial that's entertaining. Um, I even linked that commercial just because it was funny. Um, but overall, uh, so much of what we believe we need uh, to the end, and in fact, it's, it's reinforced by society, like I said earlier, about how you, know, you can get made fun of for deciding to live in a trailer. Um, one of the things I didn't include in the blog that was in this, uh, the, the second article, and I can, I can source all these if people are interested in reading the originals, uh, was a guy who's making a documentary film called Happy, and he's studying about what actually makes people happy. And one of the things that he did was he moved into a trailer park. Uh, and he has basically spent most of his days surfing now, you know, doing outdoor activities, and he's 100 times happier. And one of the reasons he can do it is because he's gotten rid of so many things that, you know, that, that are that monetarily suck away from you. You know, and that's, I, I think, a really... Uh, a really powerful point, you know, and I, I guess it's interesting, you know, um, so, I mean, Gilbert, when, when, you know, people in Europe and in the Netherlands specifically, obviously, since you have more experience there, you know, look at American consumerism. I mean, I mean, are you aware of it? Do you, you understand what caused it? Or is it just something you kind of shake your heads about? Or, you know, I mean, what, what is it, what is generally the thought about that? Well, I mean, it's a double standard, really. On one hand, we shake our heads about it, but uh, on the other hand, it's really not uh, something that we don't do either. I mean, it's it's a little less uh, exaggerated here. People are a little bit more conscious on what they do, but in essence, it's the same same idea on a less uh, less big scale, so to say. But uh, yeah, no. I've, American consumerism? I don't, I don't know. There's, uh, there's not a whole big difference in the way that things work around here. One thing I did want to comment about, though, is the trailer parking, which is, it seems to be something very usual for Americans already, and it's, it's something that's very, very odd here. So that, that's a difference in contrast and perception, I guess. So at least for me to understand the whole trailer park idea. <laughs> no, it's interesting, actually, you know, because... Um I understand what you mean because when I went to Ireland, you know, if people asked us where we lived and we, we said a trailer park and, and they were very confused. They didn't understand what that meant. And essentially, it's called a trailer park, although essentially it's just prefabricated homes 
um, you know, it, they kind of evolved out of what used to just be like leisure vehicles, like RVs and stuff. I mean, I'm sure you have, you have campers, like vehicle campers in Europe, right? Sure, sure. And I do definitely, I mean, I've seen, I've seen enough movies to know what the trailer park actually is, but right. it's, it's just very odd for us to imagine living in those full times. I guess it would be relevant to maybe share something that, that as I, I mean, I live in a trailer, but that's actually what I do for a living is move mobile homes. There you go. Well, <laughs> we, we, we do have uh, less quality homes, if you will, or if, if that terminology is even justified, but, uh, I mean, the quality isn't, isn't um, set by the luxury of the house, but... Uh, if you, if you would look at it from that perspective, say that that a, a house uh, made out of other material is uh, in most cases more luxurious and it is a lower standard, then we do have lower standard houses, but usually they are like uh, bungalows or something, a bungalow park, uh, sort of. I don't know. I, I let, last time I mentioned the term bungalow to an English-speaking person, they were quite confused as well, but it would be similar to, uh, to a vacation house or something like that. Those are more common, uh, less valued homes here, so that, that's a little bit easier to put into perspective. But we don't have a lot of people that actually live there, and most that do do so by their own choice because of a very different lifestyle, uh, usually quite... Uh, Un, well, might sound harsh, but uh, usually quite uh, the type of people that are not very uh, sophisticated or, well, in general, I don't know. I, I'm losing the right English terminology. Basically, the the trash kind of people. <laughs> oh man, that's terrible. I can't explain it. Really trash. Um, there was something I did want to point out. Um, I, I lost my point of relevance. I know it came up earlier, but I wanted to, there was, I'm, I'm still searching for it. I had a link to this lecture by a woman on optimism and especially optimism in America and, and the negative effects of that. And it was relevant to something we talked about the, and maybe even the topic altogether where people strive for happiness as though happiness or this permanent state of being that we're going to reach and then we're going to be there and that's it and we're happy. Uh, and that's not how the mind works. That's not how the body works. I mean, we should know this by now, but um, that optimism can be very damaging in a way, that, that positive thinking and that we should always strive for this one point of just happiness and that if we're not in this one point of happiness, that something's wrong and we need something else. And I, I think that's relevant to the point, in a sense, that uh, it's not necessarily about that, that you have to reach this point of where you're just always going to be in this point. It, it's impossible to reach that. That's not how the brain works. You have different states of, of emotion and recognition. of I mean, everything, every situation brings about a different emotion and thought, and, and uh, that we shouldn't be so focused on necessarily achieving this point of happiness. And I think that relates to the consumerism and the overall topic. And, and I, I'm going to keep looking for this. Uh, there's a TED Talk and a book and a whole 
thing on this, but uh, I, I can't seem to find it, but still entered my mind, so I wanted to bring that up that, because I do think that's relevant. That, that you know, striving for this, this state of just uh, happiness as though it were some permanent state we can attain is also a mistake in the psychology and something that, especially in America, has been misrepresented. You know, I agree with you. Um, it's, you know, it just occurred to me um, that there's another aspect to this that occurred to me about what, what the benefit of the whole ad hominem against people who live less than you is. And it's that if somebody else is not working as hard as you, you know, to, you know, keep up with the golden arrow of consumption, uh, <laughs> um, you, you, would res you resent them. That's actually, uh, there's a friend of mine, I mean, he's a friend of mine now. We, I lived with him for a long time when I was, you know, that young bachelor I was talking about earlier. This is a different friend, though. Um, and he was plugged into a, a big job, you know, and, you know, he was always, you know, into getting more stuff. He had a nice surround sound system, high-definition television, bought a new car every year, and, you know, and his life was all about the acquisition of items and wealth. And my life was about working enough to pay my bills and maybe have a little extra money for the things that I did, none of which were very expensive. I was a bachelor. You know, I was in my early 20s. Um, and that was it. I, I had no interest really in going much further than that because I was happy where I was. And he ended up, like, eventually, you know, uh, resenting me because – he'd want to go do things and he wouldn't be able to because he had time. And then he'd see me go do those things. And this would upset him, you know, and of course, because he resented me, well then therefore he needed to find a way to, to make what I was doing wrong or even immoral. It was immoral that I was not enslaved to some corporation. It was immoral to him. I mean, he of course didn't say it like that, but you know, they frame it as you're lazy or, or you're a loser is the term they use. Um, I'm a loser because I'm happy and enjoying myself. This is something I said to him actually when I, when I left his home. You know, he called me a loser and I, I told him, I'm like, okay, well, here's the, here's the skinny. You come home and you're so stressed out about your job that everybody in the house goes into their room because they're concerned that you're going to find some way to take out your anger on them. Okay. Your daughter, your girlfriend, the other roommates, they all just vanish when you come home. You ever notice that? You know, I'm a loser yet you're miserable and I actually enjoy my life. Yes. It's simple. Yes. I don't have some of the toys you have, but I'm enjoying myself and you're not. So which one of us is winning? And that's, that's a powerful point that I don't think people really think about. You know, and I've, I've also, and I think I brought this up on previous shows, but because of the hobby that I'm part of, I know people from all walks of life, rich and poor, who are rubbing elbows in the same activity. And every single one of them, from the guys on welfare to the guy I know who has a brand, it was a house that's got, I think it was like 12 bedrooms in it, who replaces his cars every year. They all have one thing in common. They're all stressed about money. They all have money problems. The guy with the two cars in the house and the people on welfare, they're both unhappy about money, forever worried about money. And 
that to me is another sign that, you know, as long as we continue to think that happiness is this thing that we're supposed to attain, yet it, it, we never realize that it, it never comes. Uh, why is it that, you know, um, why is it that we don't feel that our lives are complete unless we have certain things? And then, what, you know, what you find is that you seem to forever be in debt, so you're forever working to, you know, get to this never-ending, you know, to get the carrot on the stick, and, and you never seem to find it. Rarely have I met anybody who's totally satisfied with his monetary situation and has more free time to sit around and, you know, and enjoy himself. It doesn't happen very much. Um, and a lot of that is because people who get more money, therefore, believe that they immediately have to change their lifestyle. And with the change in lifestyle, now the proportionate amount of effort on their part, it, you know, comes up to maintain it. And that's why, for example, any time that I've ever had any excess of money, I am always careful to be very careful not to add more things on my life that will be a leech. So I said those residual things, the monthly payments. Did you have something to add, Chibi? Right, yeah. No, I agree with everything you said. I was just, it, once you get that more money, they're wondering why the ecstasy hasn't come yet. <laughs> you know, a lot of times I think that, uh, well, why, you know, I should be exuberant at this point, and I'm, not, and I'm not. So I have to do more and more and more until I reach that exuberance. And, of course, diminishing returns sets in at some point. Uh, even if even if you did achieve something that I mean this this goes for more than just money and relationships anything that you know once you you have a certain high point and you expect that high point to last forever and it doesn't it doesn't work that way even if even if the situation was really good based on whatever it was you considered to be good uh, your brain would release the proper chemicals and you would experience those emotions and so on and so forth but you know eventually that's going to diminish. It can't go on forever. Your brain can't do that forever. Uh, you'll get used to it. You'll have diminishing returns, and then you're going to want more and more and more and more and more. So uh, people really need to understand that and understand that there is a diminishing return and understand that there is no ultimate ecstasy or happiness that you're going to ever reach in, in all areas of life, not just in monetary acquisitions, but in relationships and family and uh, yeah, I, I think that's a big thing that people need to really stop and think about, and and it'll help them be more content. And I think content is a a more that's something more stable when you can be content. Um, it doesn't mean that you're in a point of ecstasy that you just have to feel amazing all the time, but you you lack misery uh, in a sense. You know that that you can be content with the way things are. Uh, to some extent, obviously, there are things we shouldn't be contented with, things that we should strive to change, and that will drive us. But, uh, you know, you can't put that on everything. That's all. Mm. That's quite interesting, though. I mean, it it almost seems in some cases that there's this state of happiness, and I totally agree with you, Chibi, about people perceiving this as some permanent state that they once will reach once they got enough monetary resources. But, I mean, it totally depends on what you define for yourself as being happiness. And, of course, I mean, you guys pointed it out with, with the different kind of wording. 
So in my simple English, this is how I would put it, um, that once a person asks themselves, oh, what do I need to be happy, and the reinforcement by society is less emphasizing the fact that you do need money to achieve that, then it would be much more easier to get into this uh, permanent or semi-permanent state of happiness because your goals and orientation would be completely different. And I guess that's why I can consider myself happy because my my life, of course, I have the same obligations as everybody else. And I I can tell you, um, if I go out, uh, I spend big. I don't care as long as I don't endanger myself and I have the ability to do so. But uh, I don't I don't push myself to get material objects. So it, it's a ration, Sorry, it's something you have to realize yourself. And at that point, you can reach that stage where you're at least most of the time quite happy and not only content. You know, and that it, it's the ability to be content is something else. Is that you know, it's if somebody is content with a very low, uh, you know, low material lifestyle, people look down on them. You know, that's when they call them names like lazy and you know, uh, and loser and stuff. It, it is almost as if, you know, we don't want people to be free of that sort of thing. You know, and actually, it's something interesting is a conversation going on in the chat room right now because I, I brought up that uh, on City of Villains, City of Heroes, I, I play on a, a role-playing server and I, I made a, you know, a super group that was kind of Venus Project themed. And uh, it, the, the, the relevant point that brought this up, though, was the fact that... Um, you know, we were, we were comparing the way different MMORPGs work. And I realized that, for example, um, in uh, Star Wars Galaxies was the first MMORPG that I played, and there was very little grinding in that game. Um, very little slow, repetitive, you know, do this, get that. You know, the game actually kind of got you into the action much faster back in those days. Um, and also the environment was much more uh, friendly and giving than any other environment I've ever encountered. Um, even people from the opposing faction would be really nice to you in that game in many cases. Now, don't get me wrong, there was also plenty of drama, just like in any other game that there's PvP in, but, but it doesn't change the fact, though, that generally, though, the attitude I got there was better than any other game. And one of the things that I noticed, though, was that because of that, what I defined to be, you know, massive multiplayer online RPGs, it requires much less effort than other games. So then I'd go to a game like, say, World of Warcraft, which is obviously designed to cater to the consumerist attitude. Because you get your gear, and then you think, you know, in, well, in, in Star Wars Galaxies, you're going to be done, say, for about six months. You won't need to acquire any more items. You'll be fine. Whereas in World of Warcraft, your gear maybe last, might last you maybe a month or two. And then you'll need to go get some more, and then some more, and then some more, and then some more. And then even... That, uh, that is something that escalated recently. <laughs> it wasn't always that way, but yeah. Yes, you know, and it's because, well, what the gaming industry found out, because Star Wars Galaxies, for example, for as much as I loved it, was not widely successful. And it's because most people play a video game uh, almost like it's their second job. And if they get to the end of the job, they don't know what to do next, so they quit the game and move on. And so Star Wars Galaxies tried to change itself to cater to that kind of player, and then just destroyed itself. Uh, I mean, just utterly annihilated itself because they lost the players that they did have. There was a special breed of player that liked Star Wars Galaxies in the old days 
And some of these people were so dedicated that they'd have six or seven accounts per person because they only allowed one character per server in that game. Um, you know, and you know, as you, you know, as you pointed out, Chief, you know, it has escalated, and it, it happens every so often. And then, you know, these expansions, you know, they add ten more levels, and a whole new set of gear, you know, and all the gear you had before is a joke. I remember, like, for the example, the the longest standing joke, at least on the server I played on, uh, Bleeding Hollow, was that orange uh, sword. What was it, Thunder Fury or something like that? It used to be the most crazy item that you would just love to get, and now people will you know, would link it just to be silly, you know, because, you know, it was so inferior, you know, now, this thing that used to be this thing that people would waste hours and hours of their lives trying to get, now is a total joke. It's a piece of junk. There is blue gear, you know, uh, that is, and for those of you who don't play online games, that basically there is game, there is gear, you know, color codes for the gear, and there is gear that is blue, which is decent, but is considered, you know, hell, even green gear that is now, better than this thing, green is below blue, you know, that, that people used to just be like, oh, you have Thunder Fury, it's so amazing, you know, and it's, it's interesting also how people prioritize this stuff. You know, we talked about this earlier, is that um, how, you know, people, you know, involved in those games would get very upset if something went wrong and they did not acquire their material possessions within their video game. This is how uh, rooted this is, because this is fictional stuff. This isn't even real stuff, you know. And then beyond that, this is the other thing that's really astounding about this, is that these people will pay real money to pay people in China to give them money so that they can go acquire fictional stuff. And there's a whole industry of uh, essentially what amounts to, it's generally like sweatshop conditions, over in China, where people do nothing all day but play these video games for the purpose of selling the gold that you get, you know, to spend, and money to spend. And it's not just, wow, it's pretty much all, every game has this. Uh, one of the reasons that I, I like City of Villains is that, the, is that there is no gear, per se. You can play the game without gear. You can't, you know, engage in player versus player, really, unless you spend a lot of time grinding. But it, it's a system where you just go buy what you need. So it's still repetitive and slow, but you don't have to wait. For, it's not like gambling, which a lot of these other games are. You have to wait until something drops. And you may have to do the same stupid task hundreds of times before that thing finally drops. And because they do it that way, you get addicted to that. You know, the, when, the, uh, when you kill the monster, you get that brief moment of excitement, like you're on Christmas morning thinking, I wonder what's, you know, I wonder what's on this monster. You know, and that's, that's all examples of, like, you were talking about brainwaves and stuff, Chidi. They, they have done studies, for example, on the effects of the brain while playing video games, and they said that it's very similar to the effects of alcohol. Are, are you familiar with that study? No, I'm not, but I, I, I could see it. I can already imagine what, what the outcome would have been. Uh, there is a point I would like to make, though, as well, that even within those video games, you can see examples of the other types of motivators, such as autonomy, mastery, and purpose, uh, where you have groups of people who are working towards more than just the material, uh, well, reward. And uh, that was what made those games addicting for other types of people. And of course, they're diminishing that as well and making it more towards materialism as time goes on. It's becoming more and more like that in, in all video games, I've noticed. So, uh, I don't know. 
I, I mean, obviously, I, I'm not really into video games anymore, but there was a time where I would have defended them in, with that argument that, that there was more to it than just the consumerism, but it's becoming less and less so. As time goes. They already had me when, when they announced that there's a game called Second Life. I just killed, killed my ass off and said, what the fuck? <laughs> Apologies to our listeners who, uh, who who saw the rated for everyone on my show because every now and then my my panelists will start cussing like sailors, but I forgive them. Um, you know, and it's it, Second Life actually is an excellent example of that. There's a whole avatarism going on. It's something that was brought up in the in the uh, Caprica, the the series that I told you about that occasionally throws some Venus Project in there every now and then in a way that's kind of interesting, but. Uh, you know, it, the whole craze there was it was beyond video games. It was essentially perfect virtual reality. Like, it was, it was essentially the Matrix, only it was the Matrix in such a fashion that you knew you were going into it, that you were jacking into it for the same reasons that people are logging onto online video games now. And they create these false personas for themselves. And, you know, there are a lot of people, for example, I know uh, a friend of mine who's not very well adjusted to material society in, you know, in real life. Uh, but his character is immensely popular uh, on this online video game. This is a guy who, you know, could not get a date, you know, who, uh, in fact, was, you know, is generally kind of shunned in most social circles, yet, you know, online, where he can create who he is, in accordance with the materialism, this is why it's relevant, in accordance with the materialism and the, the aspects that we um, value, you know, because you can make your appearance any way you want, you know, and if you have the most powerful gear and stuff, it's the same thing essentially as driving the Maserati or the Lamborghini. You know, it, it has a social impact. You know, and it's, it's interesting that we end up going to these games because that's another thing, is that a lot of these games, for example, in these games, you can be something, you can be successful, you can have all the social stratification in the world, and in real life, you might actually be really poor. You know, it's, it's a whole other way to kind of enslave you to that. Um, it's, it's more that bread and circuses effect that we talk about that the Romans did to keep people quiet, you know, and that's, uh, you know, quiet and, you know, essentially dumbed down because, I, you know, it's just like that, that story I've already told a dozen times, so I'm going to go through it, but I went into that Ventrilo server, you know, and I talked about the war in Iraq and those people were highly offended about that and they didn't want to talk about any of that and, you know, it wasn't even, well, it wasn't even just that they were offended as in that they were upset about my position. It was more that they didn't even want to think about that stuff. It bothered them that I brought it up. It harshed their buzz, so to speak, because they'd much rather be screaming and hollering at each other about their purple items that they didn't get. You know, and that's, when you think about it, though, you know, it, it certainly suits us to forever be chasing the, you know, the, the purple dragon, so to speak, <laughs> that we're never going to catch. Um, and some people, after they're finished with it, they really don't know what to do with themselves. And that's actually kind of what this uh, argument was about, was that the people who have played the, you know, the video game that is life, meaning real life, and they get to the end of it, which is to say that they have a job that's taking up most of their time, uh, you know, making this huge salary and all that, average person would say that that person's life is a success. And they would look at somebody, you know, in a, in a less monetarily uh, prestigious position, and they would tell them that their life was a failure. 
even if the person who's making all that money and has a prestigious job is miserable, and even if that person who maybe just lives in a one-bedroom apartment or even an efficiency apartment, plays some video games and you know, works at McDonald's, is happy. He's still a failure. It's interesting that our, you know, our entire concept of what makes somebody have a successful or worthwhile life is not linked to happiness. It's linked to our, essentially our participation in the, the consumerism. This is why uh, on a recent Liberty Unleashed episode, we talked about that. And uh, somebody uh, recently linked to me, there's this thing it's called the Hand, Hanged Man Project. And uh, the guy did a video about it. One of the things he talked about was mental slavery. And he talked about how, uh, you know, even though we, you know, the founding fathers got themselves liberated from England, he said that mentally these people were still slaves. Now, mind you, he doesn't get into a lot of details. Um, he's going to later, and I, he actually agreed to come on my show sometime later this month. Um, Mr. Stewart, I believe his name was. Ben Stewart, I think. Um, anyway, uh, it had occurred to me that most people really are slaves, even when they don't, even when they, when they don't believe that they are. You know, that's, they don't, even if they're not aware that they are. And that's because the consumer mentality and the brainwashing that goes along with it is slavery. And it's, it's even more insidious because you're not aware of it. It comes back to what Peter said in addendum. You know, actual slavery requires that your owners feed and care for you. Economic slavery requires that you feed and care for yourself. And the funny thing is, the average person, if you stuck them in a situation, we get this all the time, particularly from capitalists, you stuck them in a situation where they were absolutely provided for, they would, they view that, they're very scared of that. They view that as them being deprived of their freedom. When in reality, they don't think about the other aspect of that, like Jacques talked about, that your job, the moment you punch the clock, you walk into a dictatorship. We spend most of our lives on a day-to-day -day basis in a dictatorship, in a capitalist system. Yet we're free, quote-unquote, free. You know, I don't know that people necessarily really think about that. You know, they don't realize that the fact that they need a job, you know, not just want, need a job, because that's how society is moving. People can't take care of themselves unless they have someone else telling them what to do, how to, you know, work on resources. We are being conditioned, folks, in such a way that we are enslaved mentally. We do not even understand the concept of true freedom. Yet we believe that we do because we've been told from kindergarten, you're told you're going to go to middle school, then you're going to go to high school, then you're going to go to college, then you're going to get a job, then you're going to get married, you're going to buy a house. You know, they, there's this whole list of things that you're supposed to do. You know, house acquisition is another aspect of that. I have a friend of mine, for example, who's very depressed because he hasn't been able to buy a house for him and his wife yet. And they live a great life. They have everything they need. They're doing well. They both have good jobs. You know, and, but he, he feels as though he has failed his wife, and she thinks this is silly, I might add, because he hasn't bought a house yet. And that's an example of some of these values that tell you, well, you're not a man. You're not even masculine unless you have purchased a house. And this, this problem is very, very bad in America. I was thinking about this the other day, uh, 
when I was thinking about relationships in general, and certainly in the American way, everything is so set out in that culture. Not that it's, it's not returning in the culture that's here in Western Europe, because marriage is a common thing. But for Americans, this is something that has to happen in, in, in most cases. Certainly for, sorry to pick a, 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 a race here, but from what I see on the TV and from what I read uh, when reading about human relationships in general, certainly related to America, um, then it almost seems as if, uh, as if marriage is, some, is one of those items that you have to achieve in life. So if they have a perfectly fine relationship, they're very, very happy with each other. They, they feel like a failure if, if they don't get married or one isn't ready to get married while they're, while they're having all the fun they can get uh, without being uh, married. So that, that's something odd that struck me when, you, when you're going over that specific part of, of getting a house while you're actually quite happy already with not having the house at this point in time and living fine. Jock and Roxanne actually talked about that to me once. They were talking about the nature of their own relationship because they also just went to a stage of, do we want to get married? You know, uh, I think it was, I think Jock actually said to me, he was like, you know, one day I was talking to Roxanne and he says to her, would you be happier if we got married? And she's like, why do we need to get married? I thought you loved me. <laughs> and <laughs> that's an example of being free, you know, because you don't have that association telling you what you should think you know, what it is that should be the, the relevant point. You know, it, you know, have I gotten married? Have I had children is another one. You know, your parents kind of pressure you to have children. You know, I have children. I'm glad I'm a parent. I sought to have children. You know, um, but just because somebody's chosen not to have them does not mean that they're less of a person by any means. Now, something that somebody brought up in the chat room recently actually uh, reminds me of a point I wanted to make earlier is that a lot of these people... Uh, you know, how often do you see drug addiction and drug abuse among celebrities? People who have supposedly what everybody wants. They have fame, they have money, you know, and then you end up in a position where you're not content. You end up doing things like, you know, being like Tiger Woods and cheating on your wife or, you know, Robert Downey Jr. before he, you know, cleaned himself up, nearly destroyed himself on drugs. You know, there are more than one example of different uh, stars and stuff, you know, stars, that thing everybody wants to be, the coveted position of being, you know, famous and having lots of money. You know, uh, how many musicians have destroyed themselves? Everybody wants to be a rock star, yet for some reason rock stars are miserable people. You know, and that's, uh, it's interesting, actually. It was one of the things that uh, in Kurt Cobain's suicide note, uh, one of the things he states that was the reason, one of his motivations for killing himself was that he could not handle that his life was a commercial lie. He could not handle that people thought things about him that were not true and that they, it, the funny thing is they loved him for these things that were not true. And it wasn't just him either. Uh, Jim Morrison went through the same thing. He couldn't stand that there were people who worshipped him who didn't really know him. And that's another aspect in one of these articles that I, I did not include that I probably should have, was that they pointed out that um, actually one of the things that actually does create a very content life is your relationships and the quality of your relationships. 
And that really clicks in my head because one of the reasons I, I have not moved out of Michigan, aside from the fact that it's actually very financially difficult to do so, um, is that I've made some friends here in Michigan that are of such quality that I can't imagine living without them. You know, these are very loyal, uh, kind people. And I've lived in a lot of places in the United States. And I'm not saying that all the good people in Michigan. In some cases, I think part of it might even be created by the environment here because it's kind of a situation of you've got to stick together if you're going to make it in Michigan. But uh, these friends, for example, uh, are people who are, in my opinion anyway, in, in many cases more important to me than many of my family members. And that's an example of those. That's what you know, makes a, a satisfying life is good, strong relationships. You know, so... Jack's uh, still with us, by the way. He was listening and he wants to make some comments. I don't know if you caught that. Oh, go ahead, Jack, if you're there. I'm here uh, listening to a lot of information on video games, which I have never played. But <laughs> <laughs> so I could tell you were into it, though. Um, I was uh, One thought about that was that I wondered how many video games these these people who were filmed uh, in Iraq and the helicopter had played to where they could just uh, have such joy in, in killing people on the ground. And as I, as I saw that video, I just wondered uh, how many video games these people had played because it was, you know, these people that they were killing, it was like they weren't real to them and they were, you know, it was like they were accumulating points for some game or something. It was it was very bizarre. Um, the other thing is that in in terms of the games and all the texting and the twittering, because you just alluded to that thing about connection. And in terms of connection and happiness, I wonder how much connection is being lost with all these gadget kind of things where communication becomes very terse instead of deep connecting and, and, and becomes very superficial. Uh, not to judge it, which I just did, but comparatively superficial compared to what real conversation and real connecting can be, which is, as you were just saying, had so much to do with, with happiness. And I just wonder how much of that is being lost. And uh, and then I've got another connection. I've got another thing to say, too, but I just, I just you know, if anybody wants to comment on, on yeah, that. Actually, let, let me, well, first let me comment on, yeah, we, you're absolutely right about the video games being used for the purpose of getting people to want to be soldiers. We covered that actually uh, a very good uh, documentary called Militainment Incorporated goes into that in great detail. And I had a show with the filmmaker and author Roger Stahl you should check that out sometime, Jack, because it, it's, it is actually absolutely mind-blowing, actually, what they do. And uh, we talked about that because you'd be surprised how many of us in the, gener the Cold War generation in particular were really G.I. Joe'd, is what I call it, um, that they, they do use video games for that purpose. The reason we were discussing video games earlier was actually because in a lot of these video games, the consumerism lifestyle is perpetuated, and I hadn't thought about that. But it is very similar to the, to, the, to the soldier, the militainment lifestyle. It's the same purpose. You, you, the reason you put these consumerism 
you know, aspects into video games is the same reason you put the soldier aspects, because you're trying to uh, cause society to associate those things with enjoyment and recreation. Now, um, now go ahead and uh, make your point. Well, this segues off into, into the other point, is, is that we've been talking about simplicity, but we've also been talking about this whole issue about consumerism and simplicity within the context of the existing every person for themselves system where, where we feel like we've got to have stuff, we've got to have something and enclose it in, within our boundaries. And what we propose with the community planet model, and I think also is, is part of the resource-based economy, is if we start cooperating as a group of people, as we, if we live in a community where the people within that community are thought of as one family, we can redefine wealth as use and access rather than possession. That we don't have to have all this stuff, but we, what if we had access to stuff? And the kind of stuff that a community, a cooperating community can have that they can provide for people would open up incredible opportunities for everyone, even billionaires, that they would not have access to right now. So we don't actually have to sacrifice uh, anything other than that thing about ownership. It's mine. I'm not going to share it. If we, if we redefine it as use and access where we can just have these things, then everybody can not only have a far more abundant lifestyle in terms of their choices and what they can do and the kinds of, you know, whether it's musical instruments or, or, or recreational uh, equipment, you know, if they have access to that stuff, they don't have to own all that stuff and we don't need all that stuff you know, if there's 500 people in the community, it's like how many cars do we actually need for 500 people that are living and working within the community? And, and how many swimming pools, how many tennis courts? We don't need them in our backyard. You know, we just need access so we can live actually far more abundantly and shift the whole, uh, whole argument about simplicity versus accumulating things, we, we can essentially really have it all as long as we just consider ourselves to be one family and we open up to cooperation and sharing. Yeah, we talk about that in the Venus Project a lot, actually, is that communities can be designed in such a way that, um, you know, you don't need your own pool because... Like, I remember like some of the ways that uh, Jacques describes the way some of the cities will be designed remind me actually of what it's like to live in a nice hotel because you have access to everything you want in the hotel. You know, that there's, your, there's the big, giant community pool. You know, there's the uh, community access sometimes to lakes, depending on what hotel you're in, uh, you know, game rooms, you know, things like that. And the other aspect about the hotel is you're not working to live there you know, I mean, you did before you came, obviously, but, uh, but basically, you know, and you don't own your room, and you don't own the television in your room, you don't own any of the stuff in your room, and you don't need to. You have access to a bed, you have access to, you know, water, you know, food, whatever, um, 
and it doesn't somehow deplete the quality of your life at all. In fact, most people think it's fun to be at a hotel. And you have access to other people who you can get together and play with. A lot of the reason why people are into these, what I call these like masturbation type games where they sit in front of a computer is they're not, they're, they're not having the access to get out there and connect with people to do creative things, to, to do community plays or, or singing or organize sports. It's like let's get people connecting again and out of that separation kind of consciousness because that's where the real happiness can be, where we really can connect with one another with with one another and when and when we have enough time to go inside and enough support to go inside make the inner connection within ourselves where happiness where we can access that happiness inside because society is driving people to look outside for completion and and that's going to be part of what living in cooperative communities can do is 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 get people back into connecting with themselves, with each other, and with nature. And, you know, and it, it isn't that the Internet itself is a problem. It's that people kind of overdose on it. Um, you know, they don't have – and I've noticed this because I've gone through it myself. Like, for example, I wouldn't – I don't want to be in the situation that I'm in that I don't get to talk to my friends in person as much as I would like. Um, but, you know, the uh, the gas prices in Michigan are so high and the economy is so terrible that – in many cases, I can only interact with them on the Internet. And I'm also glad of all the friends that I've made on the Internet that I never would have been able to make otherwise. You know, um, so it, it, it is kind of a – there are benefits and there are negatives. The problem is, is that some people, they lose their ability to, to meet with each other, you know, in real life. And that's actually something like the local Zeitgeist Michigan chapter, the, the, the leader did a really good job. And, you know, I said, you know, hey, you know, maybe we should have our meetings on Ventrilo you know, back, back then, that's when Zeitgeist used Ventrilo. He's like, you know, I thought about that, but there's something to be said about meeting in person. You know, sitting around in a, you know, in a table or a co- you know, at a table or a coffee shop. You know, some of the places we've had our meetings are really relaxed atmospheres, and and I've loved every meeting I've been able to go to. You know, and it's it's definitely a very different feeling than just having a meeting on voice chat. You know. And if you can't do, you know, if you can't meet in person, in some cases, for example, we can't obviously have an international meeting in person as much as that would be nice. Um, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't, and it's not to say that those interactions don't have value because they absolutely do. You know, a lot of my position, my, my opinion about world events and stuff comes from interactions I had with friends of mine in Star Wars Galaxies who lived in Mexico, Portugal, France, Sweden, who I never would have met otherwise. And that's an example where it can enrich you because you're connecting with people from different places in the world. But, but you can't let it take over your life to the point where like, you end up like that girl that Sandra Bullock was playing in the movie The Net who had no life outside of her computer at all. You know, the, the characters in her life, her friends, were little, represented by little icons in a chat room somewhere, you know, um, now, we haven't heard from Chibi and uh, uh, Gilbert for a while, so we're going to call them up. So, you got anything to add so far, Chibi? No, to be honest, I lost track. I had something to say earlier, but I, I forgot what it was. Write this crap down, Chibi. Uh, I, I should. Get with the program. I have to start keeping a pad and paper near me. 
well. It's, especially when we're on the stage of the show where we're kind of in the discussion phase, you can you get lost. And Gilbert, did you have anything to add? Well, I mean, aside from the fact that if it weren't for the Internet, we wouldn't be talking right now, I definitely think Jack does have a point. There, there's specific instances when personal contact is indeed uh, preferred, and I would see more as an enhancement or enrichment of your life than it would be on the net. But uh, then again, you did mention international meetings and the use of technology, which has enriched other parts of our communication, which I think is a, is a very good thing. And, and relating it back to the to the monetary uh, part of it that we've been talking about, we, we use software that is, in a way, quite free to use. We, we pay a little to keep it up, etc. But for the rest, it enhances our ability to communicate so much that uh, that it, it's definitely an, an addition to our daily lives. Certainly, um, when we're talking with so many people with the same mindset and same uh, ideas about how to actually achieve a better world, uh, that, that contributes to my happiness on a daily basis anyway. So I think if I'd, I'd have to say anything uh, as a closing comment, that would be it. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy that uh, even though uh, I am not rich, I am able to uh, speak, uh, well, which isn't a bad thing. I, I don't need to be rich. I don't aspire it. But e- even though I don't have unlimited access to everything, and even though I know it probably wouldn't make me happy either, I'm quite happy to be able to be with people that actually care for this world and I can communicate with them on a daily basis. Well, um Something that just keeps been, it's been bugging me because I've been thinking about it. This kind of goes back to the original video game comment. Um, we were talking about, you know, how the consumerism makes its way into there. And I'm sorry that this is kind of a, a jump back tangent, but this was a point that needed to be made was that I remember specifically, for example, once getting into a, a bit of a heated debate with somebody in World of Warcraft. And the first thing that came out of his mouth was, well, look at you. You know, your gear is terrible. You know, why should anybody listen to anything you say? Because you're wearing, you know all green gear, and the first thing that came to my head was like, I'm back in high school. Now I'm, you know, I, I was invalid in high school because I didn't wear guest jeans that had a triangle on the back that said guess on them. You know, instead I wore Wranglers that had a square on the back that said Wrangler, and therefore I was less of a human being. Um, and it, it's the same thing, and the fact that, you know, that was the other thing. is that I, I, And when you say this to these people, man, it, when you break their matrix, so to speak, they really hate it. You know, but I, I remember, for example, you know, there were people who really valued uh, player versus player in City of Villains, and I kind of laughed at them because, you know, it was like, you know, so you think that because you have better gear than me, you know, that that in some way validates you as a bigger, a better person. And, you know, and they, of course, they don't like that because they like being leaped. They did the work that they did to get the gear that they got to feel that leap feeling. Um, but, and then I point out to them, I'm like, look, your ability to do repetitive tasks on a video game Clicking a mouse endlessly does not somehow make you a more effective or worthwhile human being. And they hate it when you talk like that. Say things to you like you're violating your work ethic. <laughs> you know, you have a bad work ethic because I don't work enough in a video game, my leisure. Um, so we're actually down to the last uh, 60 seconds or so of the live broadcast, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we've pretty much covered almost everything um, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. You go to the Must See TV tab, you'll see several of the documentaries that I have mentioned to watch for free. Uh, 
you can go to our archives and listen to some of the past shows that I've been referencing. Um, if this is your first time listening to B Radio, thank you for tuning in. And if you're a long-time listener, thank you for tuning in. And, and do me a favor, because these kinds of radio shows spread awareness essentially through word of mouth much better than anything else. If I'm putting on a show, link it in your Facebook, link it in your Twitter. You know, give, you expose it to other people, because one of the main things that motivates me on this is the more people are listening, the more I know that the work that I've been doing here is getting out to the most amount of people. Um, so uh, that being said, I guess um, I'm pretty sure that it's going to cut us off here as far as live broadcast, but um, uh, I want everybody to go ahead and uh, make a final statement if you feel the need. I'll start with you, Jack, and then we'll disconnect. Did you have a final statement, Jack? Communityplanet.org. Communityplanet.org. Go! Look at the video. <laughs> it is a great video, too, by the way. It is worth it. I enjoyed the. Yeah, this was a great discussion. I enjoyed being here. Oh. Bye, everyone. Yep. Gilbert? Bye-bye. <laughs> We're out of time. That's fine. No problem. It's still come up on the... Uh, It'll still come up on the uh, archive. So, Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Um, this has been a great episode of V Radio. I actually was inspired to do this by going back and listening to some of the old shows where we would just kind of uh, read a topic and then discuss it on the air. Um, unfortunately, Thunder, I guess, must have had some kind of Internet problem because uh, he, he didn't light up again on Skype for the rest of the night, which is too bad. Um, thank you again, everybody, for tuning in, and I'll leave you with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio. All right. Uh, that's that.